We're continuing in our study of Exodus. We come this morning to Exodus chapter 26, which is the description of the tabernacle. And before we read this, I want to say two things. Number one, most people encounter or read this text as if it is an engineering schematic. This is exactly how to build your own tabernacle in your own backyard if you desire to build a tabernacle. Bear in mind that the tabernacle had been built and in use for 40 years before these words were ever written down. So the words are not written to teach you how to build a tabernacle. The words are written for some other purpose. And I want to get into that purpose, but I think it's helpful as we read it. As you're reading this, we'll get into the cubits and the rings and all that stuff. But I just want you to listen in the reading for these visual images. The Old Testament worship is very, very visual. And these these pictures that are given to us are extremely powerful visual elements. So as we're reading, pay attention to the visual elements. Don't get hung up on the cubits. But pay attention to the visual elements, which I believe is why God gave us this passage. And our complementary passage is John's Revelation, chapter 22. I'm sorry, chapter 21, verses 9 through 27. So if you would place your bulletin in Exodus chapter 26, open your Bibles to John's Revelation chapter 21, and in honor of God's word, please stand. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 9, hear God's word. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, 
the 11th Jacinth, the 12th Amethyst. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it, gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 26 and continuing in the reading of God's word. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. You shall make fifty clasps of gold. Couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall all be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make fifty clasps of bronze, and put the clasps into the loops, and couple the tent together, that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle, on this side and that side, to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram's skins, and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames. Two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames, and there 40 bases of silver. Two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. 
Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, sixteen bases, two bases under one frame, and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frames, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold, and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars. And you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read We come to the preaching and the hearing of your word, and we pray that you would open our minds and feed our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So one of the things that I enjoy doing, I'm sure many of you do as well, is walking along a beach and looking down and seeing the seashells that have been cast up onto the beach. And it always strikes me how intricate, how beautiful, how unique each seashell is. Everyone just a little different from the other. It also strikes me that when I'm picking up a seashell, I'm picking up leftover trash of God's beauty. This animal the snail or clam or whatever it is that is inside a seashell, lived down at the bottom of the ocean, quietly lived its life, lived and died without anybody other than a scuba diver ever looking at it. It's simply because God loves beauty. Beauty that is not for man to behold necessarily but beauty just because God loves beauty. This tabernacle, in all of the descriptions of it, at the very least, we should walk away going, wow, that must have been a beautiful structure. There's purple and blue and scarlet and gold and embroidery, cherubim woven into all of these tapestries. Rings of gold, the beams itself overlaid with gold. 
This was a stunning, stunning structure. And very few people ever laid eyes on it. Did you notice there in verse 14, the entire structure, all of this beautiful blue and scarlet and gold and embroidery, all of this is covered over by goatskin, which would be for the purpose of keeping it safe from the elements because this stuff is precious. This is not stuff you want sitting out in the desert sun for any length of time. And so it's protected. It's guarded, which means that the average Israelite never laid eyes on it. So why is it here? If the average Israelite... Now remember, the Exodus is written to the children of Israel... They've already wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They're camped on the plains of Moab. They're preparing to enter into the promised land. And Moses writes the first five books of the Bible to tell them their story, beginning in creation and how God brought them together as a nation, sent them down to Egypt, delivered them out of Egypt, met them at Sinai, gave them his law, all of these things about who their God is, when they're receiving this instruction, this tabernacle has been in their midst for an entire generation. So why do we have this detail? And what do we take away from this passage? Well, the first is, and this is, you know, I mentioned last week, sometimes Christians have our own little shorthand. We have our Christian way of saying things. And the Christian way of saying things, somebody from outside might look at and go, what on earth are you talking about? And I think tabernacle is one of those words. There's tabernacle Baptist church. There's tabernacle this. There's tabernacle that. What's a tabernacle? What does tabernacle mean? Why do we use this word tabernacle, particularly in Christian circles? Well, the closest that at least an English speaker might come to the actual biblical use of the word tabernacle is mobile home. That's what a tabernacle is. It's not a palace. Palaces certainly existed in those days. It's obviously not a temple. You'll remember, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, that David wants to build a temple, and God says, listen, you don't need to build me a house. The heaven is my house. The earth is my very footstool. You're not going to build me a house, but I'll build you a house. And he describes his promise to David that one of his his, uh, descendants will always occupy that throne. God chooses to dwell in a mobile home. That's a glorious mobile home. It's got blue and purple and scarlet, all of these rare dyes, intricate woven, intricately woven, needlework, gold all over the place in this thing. But it's a mobile home. It's not a palace. 
Why? What's the point? What is it that God is saying? Because I think what God is saying here in this tabernacle and in the design of the tabernacle is a central theme throughout the entire scripture. It's a central theme that finds its fullest expression there in Revelation chapter 21 and then also in verse 22. But this tabernacle, what is, what is central to it is it is temporary. It is also mobile. The people are going to be following this around because the wilderness is not their home. The people are going to be camped around it because the center of their life is going to be found right here in the mercy seat, in the table of showbread, in the lampstand in the sacrificial system that is right here at the very center of who the people are. And all of this covered over, all of this like a seashell, underneath the ocean, just waiting until God in His perfect time takes this and opens it up into something that blows our minds. As beautiful, as stunning, as all of this must have been, the New Testament writer, both in Hebrews and John in the Revelation, really hammer the point home that this is tawdry. This is second class. This is the cheap stuff compared to what you and I now have. This tabernacle was temporary. This tabernacle was mobile. Those are two central points of it. The beauty of this tabernacle really is a beauty only for God to behold. This is not a public display. Remember all these things are covered up? We got, we got ram skins, we got goat skins. It's all under cover. Everybody knows what's in there, but nobody sees it. It's not for the delight of the people. There's something here about this tabernacle that God particularly delights in. So I think when we answer, or when, when, we, when we get to that question of the tabernacle and what the tabernacle is, I think what we're really asking is, what is the purpose of the tabernacle? Because clearly this is more than just a tent. I mean, God could just as easily, just ha- as easily have said, build a tent, put the ark in it, and don't go near it. Because that's the point, right? The tabernacle is for the Ark of the Covenant. The tabernacle is for these special instruments, these special dishes, these special things that are supposed to go in that we've already seen. The table of showbread, the, the lampstand, the bowls and the platters and all of those things. The tabernacle is just a tent. 
So why this intricate detail? Well, I think first we begin to understand the purpose of the tabernacle when we, again, take note of the richness, the richness of this material. This is, this is not common everyday material. The, the scarlet yarns, the, the twined, fine twined linen in blue and purple and scarlet yarns, the gold that are the rings, all of these things, it's precious. There's something profoundly precious about this. So what's the preciousness? Have you ever thought, have you ever asked yourself that? What is it about God's house? What is it that is precious? Do you look at church? Do you look at the gathering together of God's people as particularly precious? As something that is to be delighted in. So, I think we can see the, the, the preciousness of this tabernacle when you consider the context in which it's given, the context in which we encounter it. You are an Israelite man, an Israelite woman, an Israelite boy, or an Israelite girl. What does your week look like What do you think it looked like for the children of Israel, Monday or Sunday, I guess, through Friday, as they are living their lives? They're not farmers, are they? They're out in the desert. (laughs) It's an entire week of hot, thirsty, dusty, tired, danger. The bandits and the, all of, all of the, the people, entire nations are going to come up against these children of Israel that are out in the wilderness. You remember Balaam and, and, and all of these things that all of God's children are going to come under the attack of all of these people that are around in the territory that they're going through. And they have Something that centers them. Something that goes before them. Something that they keep their eyes on. Something that keeps them moving. Something that says to them, even though I've spent my entire life trudging through this hot desert sand, I would rather continue trudging through this hot desert stand, then turn aside and set up a nice tent beside this oasis and say, forget all this marching through the wilderness nonsense. This is a perfectly fine place. It's got grazing for my sheep. It's got water. I'm done. They kept at it. And they kept at it for an entire generation. Because there's something here, there is something here that draws them, that pulls them on. And I think one of those things, because a tabernacle, 
the, the word tabernacle becomes used as, for those of you who are young people in schooling, uh, you remember what a gerund is? It's a verb that acts like a noun. <laughs> to tabernacle becomes a word that is a noun that acts like a verb. Where God tabernacles with his people. God is pleased to dwell with his people in this temporary state. This, this precious tabernacle, this moving tabernacle is a reminder. And, and God brings this up when, when David says, I want to build a house. God says, listen, I've been moving around homeless for a long, long time. I don't need a house, David. You need a house. I don't. The tabernacle is a reminder that God is right here with you. Right here with you in that wilderness journey. In the dust. In the heat. In the fatigue. In the danger. In the hunger. In the thirst. God is here. And He is your portion. And your strength. God is sufficient. God is enough. And that's what all of this... You remember the children of Israel later on, it becomes they become like magical items. They, they forget what these things are. So the Ark of the Covenant becomes a talisman that they carry into battle. Or, or the temple becomes a collection of precious artifacts that we can show off to, to other people to demonstrate just how wealthy and, and important we are. But if we get back to the source, get back to the very root, the very heart of it, the tabernacle is this precious, precious reality of God's reconciling man to himself through the mercy seat, through the table of showbread, reconciling the world to himself in the tree of life and the light, but also walking with you, communion with you, and your walking with him. And it's interesting that John uses this picture of the tabernacle. If you remember that perfect cube, that's the Holy of Holies. John is describing the Holy of Holies. He's describing the tabernacle. He's describing the temple. And he's, he's, he's showing us the absolute perfect. You remember the writer of the Hebrews says, the tabernacle is a copy of what already exists in heaven. It's a copy of a heavenly reality. The mercy seat, all of the elements are copies of that heavenly reality. So John shows us the heavenly reality. He shows us that great city. But do you notice how in both cases, both here in Exodus and in Revelation, they're both shown for the same purpose. Why are you given all of the details of the tabernacle? It's not so you can build your own. Why are you given all the details of what heaven's going to look like? It's not so that you can build your own. It's so that you and I can know this is what we're pressing towards. This is where our home is. This is where our purpose is. 
This is where our life is. This is who we are. And beloved, if you get that, if you're like me, you have to get it over and over and over and over again. But if you get a sense of that in the midst of your wilderness journey, Christianity is not about escaping the wilderness. Christianity is not about even enduring the wilderness. Christianity is about centering on that glorious, greatest news that could ever be told that man in his wickedness can be reconciled to a holy and perfect God. And here in the mercy seat, here in all of the beauty, all of the glory that surrounds this thing, this thing called grace, this thing called salvation, this thing called mercy and reconciliation and atonement and this all of this thing that is the gospel surrounded by the luxurious, rich beauty is what keeps you moving putting one foot in front of the other. This is what keeps you from despair. This is what keeps you from the despair not only of your own wickedness, of the things that you wish were different, the things that you don't see uh, changing in you. It keeps you from the despair of external wickedness. Those things that happen to you. Those things that happen to other people. There is genuine evil that is in this world. There's genuine evil that's in some of our families. There's genuine evil that you and I experience. And that may be moral evil. It may be physical in the sense of the death and the brokenness of of bodies and and the, the result of the curse. But there is evil that you and I encounter, and beloved, it is here. It is here that you and I can be sustained. That you and I can be kept from despair, from giving up, from sitting down. The tabernacle is this precious place that says, God is with us. God has reconciled us to himself. God is guiding us. Not taking them out of the wilderness. Not taking them out of this difficult journey that they're in. But guiding them in it. Guiding them through it. The one thing about this tabernacle that obviously is central, is found in verse 31. The veil. You're going to hang this veil on four pillows of acacia. You'll hang the veil from from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony there within the veil, and the veil shall separate you for you, the holy place, from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you know, if you've grown up in church for any length of time, that when Jesus Christ was crucified, there was a great earthquake, there was darkness, and that exact piece of cloth, that veil, 
that veil from Exodus chapter 26 was ripped in two from the top to the bottom. God himself took that veil and tore it like a piece of paper and said there is no more barrier. There is no more the high priest coming into the Holy of Holies and that once a year. But now you and I are invited into this. All of this, all of this mystery, all of this high high church, I guess I want to say, all, all of the ritual, that's what I'm looking for, all of the high ritual that goes around the worship of the Old Testament, all of this, you and I enter into the plain, simple reality of. And so as much as this encouraged the children of Israel in their wilderness journeys, The writer of the New Testament, writers of the New Testament say, we've got something better. We have more. We have something that is more encouraging. We have something that is more sure. We have something that is more. But it's still a wilderness journey. It's still you and I walking through real life. Walking through the pain and the discouragement the joys, the trials. This hot, dry, dangerous journey that the children of Israel were on is secured by this tabernacle. Centered on this tabernacle. And beloved, the hot and dry and dangerous journey that pilgrims are on, that you and I are on, is centered around that perfect tabernacle. That perfect expression of God is with you. That's what the tabernacle teaches us. Yes, it's rich. Yes, it's sumptuous. Yes, it's extravagant. Because that message that God is with you is an extravagant message. It's a rich message. It's the only one, beloved. It's the only one that can keep you from despair. The truth of the matter is, He is. He is with you. He does lead you. That tabernacle, that place that reminds us of God's glorious, rich presence. We've come in many ways, to a very simple and plain tabernacle. A tabernacle that reminds us of God's presence. A tabernacle that reminds us that God himself is here with us. A tabernacle that is as rich and sumptuous as that tabernacle was, this is almost the exact opposite, isn't it? It's just bread and wine. It's just plain, ordinary elements. Very few people make a big deal out of, we're having bread for dinner. That's not a big deal. And in many ways, 
I think that's intentional here. The bread is not the point. The tabernacle is not the point. The, the physical items of these old covenant elements of worship are not to be the focus. But it's the meaning there behind them. It's the meaning that we engage through them. And beloved, that is what this tabernacle is. In all of its simplicity, it's gorgeous. It's rich. It's sumptuous. It's nourishing. It's encouraging. It's a reminder that God is with you. That He moves with you. That He walks with you through the wilderness. That mercy seat, those blood, the blood of bulls and goats had to be offered again and again and again because they were always insufficient. Until that one time that that perfect God-man hung on the tree and accomplished it, lifted his voice in all of its painful agony and cried out, it is finished. And it is. It is finished. You and I are reconciled. And you and I have a more sure word than even the tabernacle represented in the Old Testament. 